So with your word of God in hand, turn to the book of Habakkuk. Today we're going to study chapter 1 all the way through into chapter 2, verse 1. So chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 1. Before I read God's word, let's go to him in prayer and ask that his blessing might be added to our time together. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, um, these are not the words of man. This is not a fun little book to read that just kind of pokes and prods our heart and makes us feel good or makes us feel sad or something like that. It's not a novel. This is the word of God. In it is revealed truth above all truths. For Father, in this book, you have revealed yourself to us. And Father, as the book of Hebrews says, you have revealed yourself to us now in these last days, once and for all, in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. This book was written long before Jesus came into the world. Yet he has testified in every line and page of it. So Father, while we come to this book, looking for Christ, and by your grace, allow it, let it be so that we find him by the power and work of your spirit. Give us new eyes with which to see, new ears with which to hear, new minds with which to understand, and certainly new hearts which to believe. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So hear now the word of God, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law was paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am, I am raising the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come, out, come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They will come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand, and kings at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning 
my complaint. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and inspired word. Mighty add his blessing to it. I believe if it wasn't the last book that R.C. Sproul wrote before he died, it's certainly one of the last books that he wrote and published. Uh, the title of it was Everyone is a Theologian. And certainly for the Christian, this is true. He writes that book really against those Christians who would say, well, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ, but I don't really like theology. You know, it's kind of heady, it's, device, it's, it's divisive. I just don't much care for it. And in that book, he's trying to get the point across to every Christian that being a theologian and being a Christian is unavoidable. If you are a Christian, you are a theologian. The question is, are you a good theologian or are you a bad theologian? Good theology can do good things for us. Sometimes good theology can get us out of logical problems. So when I was teaching school back in, uh, uh, back in Huntsville, Alabama, I used to ask the uh, students a question. Uh, two questions. The first one, pretty easy. It's a Sunday school type question. Can God do anything? And of course, all the students would say, yes, of course, God can do anything. He's all powerful. He's sovereign. He created the heavens and the earth with the word of his mouth. Of course, God can do whatever he wants to. And then they would go on and on very proud of themselves because they got the question right. But then I would ask them my second question. Can God create a stone so heavy that even he can't lift it? And then everybody would go silent. Because how do you answer that question? If God can do anything, that he would be able to do that. But then if he did that, he wouldn't be able to lift the rock. So what do we make of it? And so they would sit there and squirm, and then finally I would speak into usually the awkward silence at this moment, and I would say, maybe the reason we didn't, maybe the reason we're having such a hard time answering that second question is because we didn't answer the first question correctly. There's a lot of things that God cannot do. To put it concisely, God cannot do anything that is contrary to his character and contrary to his nature. His nature. He is true. Therefore, he cannot lie. Another thing that he is is that he is sovereign. He is sovereign. As R.C. Sproul has said, there's not a stray particle out there somewhere not under the sovereign guiding hand of God Almighty. And so if God were to create a rock that is so large that even he couldn't move it, then there would be something out there that he is not sovereign over. And he simply cannot do that. You see how good theology can maybe save us from some logical problems? Unfortunately, it doesn't always work. Holy. He is just. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is active in the lives of men. He is active in history. Yet injustice, suffering, and evil just fill this entire world. How, how does that work? How does that work? God, is God just? And so just in case you missed it, I want to go back through kind of what we, re what we read because sometimes prophets are kind of difficult to follow and this is kind of how the way they wrote. But let me just kind of put, bring a few things to, to your attention, kind of a bird's eye view of this. In verses 2 through 4, Habakkuk begins his prophecy by offering up a prayer to God. And in this prayer, he's asking God, why does he sit idly by Why, while, and this is my interpretation of it, this is Calvin's interpretation of it, that why does he sit idly by when his own people, Israel, behave wickedly? They pervert the law, they pervert justice. And these are people that have taken on the name of God. 
They are Yahwist. They are, they are Jews. And so when they sin, they don't just break a rule here or there. No, they, they, they drag the good and holy name of God along with, along with them into their sin and wickedness. And he's saying, God, why don't you do something about this? And then, then beginning in verse 5, God answers. God answered. Now, we might sometimes think, like I was telling the, the children up here, like we, it would be, some of the times we think, well, it would be really nice if God would just audibly answer my prayers like immediately when I pray. Well, be careful what you're asking for here. Be careful what you're asking for. Because now, now God begins to speak, and he says, you, you know what? I am going to do something about this. I am sending the Chaldeans. And you might better know them as the Babylonians. These are not good people. I mean, the Israelites are bad. They're not Babylonian bad. The Babylonians are so much worse than the Israelites. And this causes another problem. This causes another problem for the prophet. He says, he says, well, wait a minute. You're just, you're going to pour out your justice, but you're going to do this by using a people more wicked than the Israelites. Why would you why would you use a wicked nation to purchase a to 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 punish a nation that is more righteous than they are? It doesn't make sense. God, I know that you're just, but here you don't seem to be just. And even look at verse 9 here. Did you notice here that the prophet uses the term violence? Well, just go back and look at the initial prayer there. What is the what is one of the things that Israel is doing that is so bad? Violence. So God is going to punish a violent people by using an even more violent people. How do we make sense of this? This is the problem that pervades this whole book. God is going to punish his wicked people by using a people who is even more wicked. And Habakkuk is beside himself in this. He says, God, how can you allow this to persist? Why are you doing this? And he's asking the question, is God just. In reality, we're going to be answering this question throughout our study of this book. Is God just? Now, here's the thing. There are going to be answers to this question, but as something that Habakkuk has, is going to learn here is that when God answers prayers, and he always does, he is in no way obligated to answer our prayers in the way that best suits us. He is not obligated to answer you in the way that you would like him to answer you. And so when we come to this question, there is going to be mystery. But let me tell you what you need to do in response to this mystery. And so if you have a, if you have your, if you have a Bible, just right up above the, the, the name Habakkuk, the beginning of the book, I want you to write this down because I think this is what the positive charge of this entire book is that where there is mystery, where there is mystery, we have to rely on what we know, and what we know is this, that God is always just, and he is always to be trusted. God is always just, and he is always to be trusted, even when our circumstances seem to be telling us something else. But before we know what to do, this morning, I would like us to see what not to do. Three things not to do in response to the problem of injustice and the problem of evil in this world. First, do not deny the difficulty of life. Do not deny the difficulty. Secondly, do not deny our doctrine. 
And then thirdly, do not doubt that God will give justice. Do not deny the difficulty. Do not deny our doctrine. Do not doubt the justice of God. So let's begin by what we sh- the first thing we should not do. Do not deny the difficulty. The typical response, unfortunately, I think for most Reformed Presbyterian Christians, when we come across people going through suffering and pain and just difficult things in their life, is we kind of come to them with the words of Romans 8, 28, kind of on our lips that God works all things together for good. And, and that is 100% true. I don't know if I could get out of bed in the morning. I don't know if I could endure suffering as insignificant as stumping my toe in the morning without knowing that God is working all things together for my good, for my benefit, and for the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. I couldn't go without it. However, many of us look at this when it's, particularly, it's usually when we're dealing with other people's suffering. We look at Romans 8, 28 as if it's some kind of magic spiritual pain pill that just kind of makes everything all right. And when we do this, I think we're misusing the text. I mean, let's just think about it. Put yourself into somebody else's shoes. I'll give you an example here. Uh, Put yourself in the shoes of Elizabeth Elliot. You know her story. Her and her husband, Jim Elliot, were called to be missionaries in Ecuador. Uh, They're uh, ministering and evangelizing these these native tribes. Well, one day, Jim, who who had gone into these tribes just day after day after day, goes into one of these tribes, and the tribe kills him. Now, Elizabeth Elliot, when he goes out there, she's not thinking, this is, when she says goodbye, this is the last time I'm ever going to say goodbye. This is the last time that I'm ever going to see my husband. He goes out, and he doesn't come. She's now single. She's no longer married. She's lost the love of her life. She's in pain. She is aching, and she's, she's crying out to God, God, why has this happened? He was doing your work. He was doing the work of your kingdom and he has been taken by the people that you sent him to. Why? Why? Now imagine in her shoes that someone comes to you and says, you know, if you really believe that God worked all things together for good, I don't, I don't think you'd be that traumatized by all that. If you, like, if you really believe that this is all going to work for your good. Why are you so bent out of shape? Get over it already. Now, this is an extreme kind of crass example here, but I think it carries with it truth. I think it carries with it truth. And think about how, how, how Elizabeth would have responded to something like that, or how anybody would maybe respond upon hearing that. They would maybe begin to say, if I really believed, wouldn't I be okay? Shouldn't I be happy that God is working all things together for my good, even the death of my husband? Then why do I hurt so bad? Maybe I don't actually believe at all. Do you see the danger here? But let's look at what Habakkuk does. Habakkuk doesn't take a fatalistic approach to this. He doesn't, he doesn't see this injustice. He doesn't see this violence and just say, well, God is sovereign. He's going to take care of it, and then it's going to go about his business. He falls on his face, and he cries out to God, why, why, why? 
he is acknowledging the pain of suffering. He's acknowledging the pain of the, uh, the difficulties of injustice. And we are called to do the same thing. When we see suffering, when we see pain in our midst, we don't sit idly by on the sidelines of other people's lives saying, well, God's got it. We go to them and we try to help them. But here's the thing. A lot of times when we, when we try to help people, the goal in our mind is to take their situation that is bad and somehow make it good. And sometimes that's how we do it. Uh, back a couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I, our, our, our house flooded. We had a, a hot water pipe burst. Um, it was just faulty. Uh, burst, very expensive plumbing repair. We had a pretty high deductible uh, on our home insurance. And we had the money. We, we paid for it all. And after we paid it, we were looking at our account. And I said, Hillary, as so long as nothing else happens, we should be okay. Well, like, less than a week later, we found out that we were pregnant with Marlo. I had a, had a panic attack. I, I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> we can't, we're having this kid. We can't, we're not going to be able to afford it. Well, there were some brothers, brothers in Christ at Westminster who, who, who saw our predicament and came to us. And really, really helped us out of that situation. Got us out of it. Got us out of it. It doesn't always work that way, does it? Sometimes we can't do anything about it. Sometimes someone is suffering. They've received a, a terrible diagnosis from the doctor. And we don't have a cure in our back pocket or anything like that. And we kind of think, well, well I, can't, I can't help. You can't help. But the question is how? How do we help in that situation? This is what we do. We become like Christ. We sacrifice ourselves and we come into the suffering with them. We come into the suffering with them. We would love it if God could just make everything easy and it would just take us out of our trouble, out of suffering. But he doesn't often work this way. He doesn't often work this way. And there's, an, there's an important apologetic point to this. Um, uh, young people, high schoolers, those who are in college, you, you particularly listen to me. You're, you're going, you're either in college, one day you're, you'll go to college, and up to this point you're, you've been in a kind of a Christian bubble here in Atoka, kind of here in the Bible Belt. Well, you're going to go off to a university, and unless it's like Christian university, like let's say like Belt Haven or something like that, you're going to meet a lot of people who are going to be hostile to what you confess to be true. They're going to be hostile to your faith. And one of the weapons that they're going to use against you in order to try to destroy your faith is the very thing that Habakkuk is dealing with here. This problem of evil. This problem of suffering. They'll say something like, if there is a God, why doesn't he do something about all of this hurt? There is all this suffering, plane crashes, babies getting cancer, fathers leaving their families. If your God is a God of love, then why in the world doesn't he do something about this? Let me give you a couple of responses to it. First of all, very briefly, just assume that they're correct. Just assume. assume, assume they're correct. Okay, let's say because bad things happen, God doesn't exist. So what? You didn't solve anything. 
the problems still exist. Planes are still falling out of the sky. Babies are still getting cancer. Fathers are leaving their families. There is still suffering. You didn't fix anything. All you did was manage to make it a hundred times worse because you took hope out of the suffering. But the Christian has an answer to this. Yes, there is suffering in the world, but because of Christ Jesus, there is hope in the suffering. This is the second thing that you do. You tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. You could put it like this. I don't know why God allows so much suffering, but I do know that he is neither unaware of it nor unconcerned with it. Quite the opposite. I believe that he sent forth his one and only and dearly beloved son into this mess of a world that we live in, that God himself came came into this suffering with, with us. And now, though I suffer, I will never suffer alone or as mightily as the one who suffers with me. For he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has borne my grief and my shame. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For my Savior, my Lord, and my God has conquered the grave. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? That's how you answer that question. That is a hope the world does not have. And pray that they will become jealous for it. But what does that have to do with Habakkuk? What does that have to to do with dealing with other people's suffering? That's not just a confession. That's an instruction. That's an instruction. We are to be like Christ to those who are suffering, those who are in pain, those who have experienced injustice, whatever form it might have taken. Do you know someone who is suffering? then go quickly to them. Come to their side and suffer with them. Because your Savior, the Son of God, has come into this world that he might come beside you. You might suffer in this world, but you will. if you are in Christ Jesus, you will never suffer alone. And your suffering will never be in vain. It will never be without purpose. It Even it has meaning. But in order to do this, in order to bring Christ to those who are in the midst of suffering, we have to know a little something about Christ. We have to know a little bit of something about his Father who sent him into this world, don't we? This is doctrine. Doctrine, the importance of doctrine. So this is the second thing that we don't need to do. In the midst of suffering and in the midst of the problem of evil in this world, we do not deny our doctrines. We do not deny our theology. So just as we saw some people responding to the presence of trouble by by minimizing the difficultness of the the situation, by minimizing the pain that people might experience in this life, and just kind of vaguely saying, well, it'll be all right, there are other people who will use this as an opportunity to deny essential truths about the Word of God, essential truths about the Bible. A lot of times... A lot of times the, 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 the problem is kind of stated like, stated like this. It says, how can a God who is all-powerful and sovereign and loving allow evil to happen? How can, some people take that as, take that as a, an excuse to say, well, yeah, of course, God is loving. Like, we, we can't deny that. The Bible says God is love. But then they'll turn around and say, well, maybe he's not all that sovereign. Maybe, yeah, sure, he's sovereign, he's all-powerful, but he has taken it upon himself that when it comes to bad things happening in the world, he just kind of takes a step back. Now, this this maybe helps 
with some of the philosophical issues here, like kind of getting God off the hook a little bit. Well, he, well, he just sovereignly decided, well, I'm not going to do anything about this. And so that way, anything that bad that happens is always, it's always somebody else's fault. He's, 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 he, he, God is nowhere to be found. Sure. But I'm not sure that really helps the situation. I'm not sure it really helps to take the omnipotent and sovereign God of the scriptures and replace him with what is essentially an impotent cheerleader on the sidelines of our lives. He was sitting back and really rooting for us, really hoping for the best, but in the end, is powerless to do anything about it. I'm not sure that's a God worth worshiping to tell you the truth. God is all-powerful. God is holy. And this is exactly what Habakkuk is going out of his way to say. So there in the beginning, there in the beginning when he starts in the prayer in verses 2 and 4, he is crying out to God in his earnest prayer to God. Um, this is his instinctive response to the evil that he sees, to pray to God, to pray to God. Then in verses 12, uh, verse 12 to chapter 2, after God responds to his first prayer, revealing his plan uh, to use the Babylonians to dispense his justice, Habakkuk responds with more earnest and patient prayer. He, uh, he says, I will take my stand at the watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. I want us to see three things about it. So I want us to observe three things about this prayer. Three things about this prayer. First of all, I want you to notice the patience of it. He's going to go to the watchtower and he is going to wait. He is going to wait. The patience that he has. This is an amazing, there's an amazing amount of theology in this. He is waiting, he is, he's waiting for God to show, to show that he is not alone, that he is going to do this. But he is also acknowledging that God is going to answer his prayer, not in Habakkuk's time, but in God's own perfect time. He's also acknowledging that God is going to respond, but it will not be in accordance to Habakkuk's wants or will. It will be in accordance to God's own perfect will and i think our prayers should reflect some of this as well one of the best prayers that i've ever heard was that he was a he was a ruling elder at westminster his name was scooter he used to joke he was named after a dog scooter he would always end his prayers he always ended his prayers by saying something like and god we're not asking that you will make it easy for us but what we're asking for is that you would give us the courage and the strength to be faithful when it is hard. I love that prayer. I think Habakkuk would love that prayer. I also think God loves that prayer. It says, God, I'm not asking for my will. I'm asking for your will to be done. And if it is your will to make it hard, then Father, give me courage and give me strength. Give me your spirit that I might be able to be faithful in the midst of hardships. And I tell you what, that is a, that is a prayer that God is not slow to answer yes to. He loves to give his children those spiritual gifts and to say yes to those. The other thing I want you to notice about this prayer is that it highlights the sovereign, not only the sovereignty of God, but God's willingness to act. I have heard it said by not a few Arminians who deny the sovereignty of God and salvation, who say that ultimately our salvation, uh, heaven and hell, hangs by the thread of a sinful person's sinful will. It's kind of a topic for another day. I will just say that I am far more comfortable putting my salvation and the hope of, of the lost salvation in the hands of a holy and loving God 
than rather than living it up to the will of a fallen sinner. But that's just me. But nonetheless, a good question. Uh, 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 but but nonetheless, though, um, um, I have heard many Armenians levy the argument against the reform that if God is sovereign and cannot be swayed, then why even pray? If I can't change his mind, if his will is immutable and unchangeable, then why does God even ask me to pray? That's a good question. Like I, have, I have a question of my own. If God is not sovereign, if God is not active in answering prayer, then why pray in the first place? Well, the best he can do is say, I'm doing all that I can do. But that's not what Habakkuk is, 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 is thinking here. He's expecting God to answer this prayer because God is active and he is willing. The third thing I want you to look at in this prayer is that he, rather than denying the attributes and the doctrines of God, he has heard, look, at, look, look with me in verse 12. He says, in his immediate response to hearing about the Babylonians, he calls God everlasting from everlasting. He calls him holy, uh, unable to even look upon sin. Rather than taking a step back and rethinking his theology, what he has been taught by the scriptures, he recites them. And in effect, he starts reciting his catechisms to himself. God, you are all of these things. And there's a bit of application here. We think of, in the Presbyterian Reform world, we, we love our doctrine. We love our theology. We love the Westminster Standards. Sometimes I think maybe we love them because it just, it's, like a, it's like a little game that we play in our heads. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's something to kind of tickle the intellect or something like that. And maybe we're a little slow to apply some practical application to it. But here's the thing. Good theology is fine and good times, but it is even more magnificent and hard times. It is even more magnificent. These things, good theology, will manifest their goodness more supremely, not in the best of our times, but instead in the worst of our times. They give us expression. They give, they give expression not only to our pain, but they give us hope in our pain. Bad theology will not comfort you in the end. It is the, script, is the doctrines of the scripture that will do these things. Now, finally, I want to close with our last don't. Don't doubt the justice of God. Don't just that he will deal out his justice. Now, I don't want to spend much time on this because we will be kind of touching on this on every single sermon, but I do want to at least say this, that I think that we have a problem with bringing God down to our level a little bit, making, making God more man-like rather than being holy and other than ourselves. Now, it's true that, so there are, so there are attributes, characteristics of God that we don't share in. Uh, they're called the incommunicable attributes. I don't, I, I don't know what it's like to be both here in this room and in Los Angeles at the same time and on Mars at the same time. I don't know what it's like to fill all of time as an eternal presence. I don't know what that's like. I have no idea what that's like. I don't know what it's like to just think something and it just pops into being. I have no, I have no experience of that. But I do have an experience of love. God is love. I've experienced love. I've experienced the love of my wife, my love of my kids. I've given love. I've also experienced mercy. I've had people be merciful to me. I like to think that on occasion I've been merciful to other people. But sometimes I have to stop and think. 
have I really been merciful? And just think of it like this. Somebody backs into my car and then just drives off. And I don't call the police. I just ask why. You might say, oh, Pastor Nick, he is a very merciful guy. He could have called the police. He could have poured wrath out on it, had this guy go to prison, sued him or something like that. But he didn't even contact the authorities. What a merciful guy Pastor Robinson is. Am I? Am I merciful or did I just set aside my justice? See, I can do that. God can. God's mercy never comes at the expense of his justice. And it bothers me to no end when I hear people, when it comes to the problem of, of just like, why doesn't God punish the wicked? They'll hear about these wicked, awful things that happen in this world, and they say, why, why, why can't God do this? Why can't, why, why can't God punish this person over here? Why can't God punish that person over here? And whenever they say that, it's always them, 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 them. It's never this. What about, what about my wickedness? What about my injustice? What about my sin, my transgressions, my failures to be merciful, my, my failures to be kind, my failures to be a good neighbor? When I, what about me when I've hurt people? All of a sudden, we want, to change the, we want to change the subject. We want to talk about how hell itself isn't just. No, hell, hell is not unjust. Hell is the home of justice. And it is inescapable except for one way. That Christ Jesus became a sacrifice and became a curse so that you might have life and have it abundantly. That is the only way. God just simply doesn't say, well, he said a prayer. He walked down front. He's fine. I don't have to be, I don't have to be mean to him. No, 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 no. That is not how this works. If you are a Christian, you are have received the mercy of God because Christ Jesus became your sin. When Jesus is so, let me let me let me finish. I, I want to read to you the lyrics of a hymn written by Thomas Kelly. It's entitled "Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted." Uh, I'm I'm eager to introduce you to this to this hymn. Um, it's some of the most rich lyrics in the entire Trinity hymnal. Let, let, me, let me read you a couple of verses that Thomas Kelly writes. He says, Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like this? Friends through, uh, th friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save. That's speaking of the actual crucifixion, the nails, the beating, the disowning, and all that stuff. And that's bad. I mean, that's, that's certainly painful. Listen to this, this next line. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was a stroke that justice gave. Sure, nails, lashes, beating. That's horrible. The justice of God is far more and when Jesus is up on the cross, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We just read this in Habakkuk 1. When Habakkuk says, you, you, your eyes cannot behold sin. When Christ is there on the cross, he, though he is sinless, though he is the perfect son of God, in the eyes of God at that moment, as God has taken the sins off of every saint who has ever lived and placed them upon his son, Jesus is the most simple creature that has ever set foot on this earth, and God cannot bear to look at him. Why have you forsaken me? Because you have become the sins of my people. 
that is the pain. That what that is the horror of the cry uh, of the cross. Thomas Kelly goes on to write, "Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here is." Son of man and son of God. If you're asking the question, where are you, God? Where is your justice? Take a step back. Think of your sin. And behold the cross. There it is. There is the justice of God. Take refuge. Take solace in that fact. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, who is like you. There are none like you. For Father, you are holy, you are just, and you are merciful only in your Son, Jesus Christ. So Father, in his name, we'd ask that your blessings might be magnified and multiplied to us, Father. Give us his name, give us his spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.